Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google slash certificates. Westwood One presents The Pollsters. The Pollsters. And now... Margie and Kristen. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with PSB Research. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So Kristen is gone this week, and she is traveling. And so I'm taking this opportunity to take a little step back from kind of the daily Trump. I know we got some reviews that said Margie had become a bit of a Debbie Downer in the last few weeks and months, which is true. And so I thought, well, maybe this seems like a good time to take a break because then obviously the news is crazy, but the polling will still be there. There will be plenty of polls. Voters still need to catch up on all of your fabulous witty tweets. And we will get to all of that next week for sure. So I'm going to take this time to recharge myself a little bit and we have an interview we haven't done an interview for a while so folks who are our new listeners we used to do interviews pretty regularly and they were just getting a little bit tough to schedule and tough to edit so we scaled those back a little bit and some of you guys and gals said that you really wanted to hear us talk about the weekly trump and you know gossip about our husbands and make star wars and wine jokes and stuff so you know that's what we stuck with but this week we have an interview and i'm very excited about this we're going to get into the weeds on methods and explain what does it mean to when we talk about methods because polling is not just are you up plus two um and how did you know or thinking about big data or even crafting the most fantastic message there's a lot more to just figuring out how to write a question. So we're going to talk about that today and also some different types of methodologies and answer one of the Twitter questions we got. We're going to do all of that with Kylie McGinney. She's one of my colleagues. I'm so excited that she's here. I'm so excited that she's not only sitting right here, that she is also one of my colleagues here at PSB because I had seen her out in Twitter and Facebook responding to the pollsters. And I thought, oh, when she was at Pew, and I thought, oh, well, she seems nice. And then all of a sudden, she was my colleague, and I was so excited. And she's incredibly endearing. We're also going to talk about her blog at the end. So you'll want to listen all the way through to the end of the interview. So anyway, Kylie, welcome. Tell us your title, what you're doing here, your last two jobs, which are cool and relevant to the work that you're doing here. Um, And then we'll start talking about your fantastic expertise. Perfect. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Um, So I am a senior director of survey methods here at PSV Research. So basically, I'm making sure that people are using the best research methods, primarily surveys, but other methods as well to answer their research questions. I've been here since November. Before that, I was at Pew Research Center as a senior research methodologist for about three years. And then before that, I was at Gallup for five years, 
working on the Gallup poll and other things there as a statistician and methodologist. Yeah. So even our newest listeners are probably familiar with Pew and Gallup. So pretty awesome. So we're going to talk a little bit about, let's start about question writing. So question writing isn't just about, although it is important to make sure every answer category is mutually exclusive. You're, you know, you're, it's clear what you're asking people to respond to. You don't have a double barreled question where they're not sure how to answer, but there are other things that, you know, you've helped folks at the firm think through like the use of a neutral category or asking whether you ask people about whether or not they know or whether you want them to volunteer. And, and tell us a little bit about that. Like you, that's those things aren't just art. There's science to it. You've studied it. Tell us a little bit about that. Absolutely. So the don't know is a great example. I am very anti don't know in questions, primarily because people kind of use it as an out. They see it. They use it a lot more than they would use it in um, a web survey where it's explicit than they would have on the phone where you just let them volunteer it. And so the only time that I think you should use don't know and you know, obviously research backs this up, is when it's a real substantive response option. Like if you are asking a knowledge question and you're trying to figure out whether people know who this picture is of, um, having a don't know will give you much more accurate data. Another time I think you should use it is, again, where it's a substantive response option, like in a favorability question, right? We know that not everyone knows who Harry Reid is. So if you don't let people opt out and say, like, I have no idea who that person is, so I can't tell you my favorability about them, you're going to get bad data. So there are times when you should use don't know, but it's sparing. So if it's like an issue, like how do you feel about this issue? Do you feel we should do it because of this reason or we shouldn't do it because of that reason? The don't know is a crutch or even exactly. in that. But even in those cases, I mean, aren't there people who would say, but I just, you know, I'm confused. I don't know. Or it doesn't matter really to me. I do think that there are times that you see that, but I think that one, the way you write your question should be make it clear that you want like the kind of their gut reaction or just um, you give them enough information to react to. Because a lot of times what we're asking is like people's impressions of things or how they, you know, attitudes about how they feel about things. We're not asking like a quiz most of the time. And mm-hmm. so we're just kind of getting their feedback more. Right. Okay. So what about the number of question, number of answer categories in a scale or the use of neutral? And here's another one that's my pet peeve, whether something's one through 10 or zero through 10, Ugh. that's a common, that has a very clear right or wrong answer. Yeah. <laughs> Others, maybe there's a little bit more subjectivity. Tell us about your thoughts on all of those. Okay. Oh, I have strong feelings about all of the above. <laughs> so first of all, don't do anything through 10, please. No, you can if you have to, like a net promoter or something like that. But the fact of the matter is a huge proportion of people who are taking your surveys online are taking them on a mobile device, on a smartphone, and people favor what they can see. Like if they can only see three response options and then there are seven that are hidden, they're going to favor those three that they can see first. So it's really important from a mobile perspective to have a shorter scale. We also know from the survey research, you know, literature that's out there that four to seven scale points are the best in terms of what's known as reliability and validity, basically how accurate the scale measures the thing you're trying to measure and how accurately it measures it, like if you've repeated the measurement. Mm -hmm. So that's why you would want to have a four to seven point scale. I personally am a big fan of four point scales. And the reason is, A, you can see all the response options. And then B, there's no midpoint. So midpoints function a lot like a don't know response option where people, is John Krasnick, who's the survey research guy, would say people satisfy, which basically means they 
want to avoid having to think or having to really give an, a response. And so they just pick the neutral midpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem is for some people, they're like legitimately using the midpoint, the middle of the scale. And then other people are using it as a no opinion. And then you can't tell who's doing what. Mm-hmm. So by and large, I would avoid midpoints. I would use a four point scale that can be unipolar or bipolar. I'll define that. So unipolar is basically you're looking at like gradations of one construct. So you're looking from very satisfied to not at all satisfied. Bipolar is when you're comparing two closely related but slightly different constructs. So that might be my favorite bipolar four-point scale is favorability. Very favorable, somewhat favorable, somewhat unfavorable, very mm-hmm. unfavorable. Right. That's bipolar. So those are my favorite kind of scale constructs. Right. Okay, cool. All right. Well, that's very helpful. So Kylie wants everybody to know uh, their answers, right? But but what about on telephone? I mean, there are a, bit, a lot of outlets have feeling thermometers that are 0 to 100 or 0 to 10. On a telephone, do you think that that adds more richness and texture or so, no, you still just people just gravitate to the tens and they don't really use the full that's, scale. Yeah, I think that's definitely a thing that happens. Heaping where basically people like, you know, kind of round or chunk up to the tens or the um, the fives. I think that there – we – when I was at Pew, we used feeling thermometers a lot. I'm not like totally anti-feeling thermometer, but I do think when we have really – um, long scales that there's kind of a false precision. Like we're mm-hmm. like, oh my God, look, the, the average is 7.6. And it's like, but what is a seven versus an eight? Especially if it's not labeled, like my seven might be your nine. I just don't think that it's that. I think that we think we're getting a lot more accuracy than we are. And so I would definitely recommend fully labeled scales at a minimum. And I would also, like I said, recommend fewer scale points. Okay. All right. So this is all super helpful. I hope everybody's taking notes, all you survey <laughs> researchers out there. You have a free consultation with the, the methodologist. Um, now, are there any other like survey faux pas, question wording faux pas that you, if you could just wave a magic wand and Ooh. have them all disappear that you say, everybody stop doing this. Okay. How about this? Not question wording, but question formatting. We used to joke at Pew that we were hashtag team no grids. I cannot stand <laughs> grids and surveys. Okay, so explain that because that's okay. an online thing. That's not a telephone thing. Correct. So, the, the, all, so these recommendations and thoughts change and vary a little bit depending on the methodology. They do. For instance, you can have longer scales online than you can on the phone based on how, you know, working memory capacity, et cetera. Um, so grids are an online um, display option. You can also use them in mail. It's basically a matrix format where you ask one general stem, like, how? what's your opinion of each of the following or something? And then you have sub-items on the grid. They might be, you know, what's your opinion of each of the following? It might be people that you're going to be rating. Or companies or yeah. something like that. And your response options are along the top. And it's literally like a six-by-seven grid that people are filling out. The thing is, people used to think, oh, my God, they save so much time. You know, they're so easy for people to answer. We should definitely use grids. But the problem is one reason that they might be easy for people to fill out is because they're not really filling them out well. They are just kind of doing this thing called straight lining happens a lot with grids where they basically just choose the same answer for every single one. Because if you see these visually, they kind of lend themselves to that. That's like every response option is right next to each other for each um, sub item, your category. But you should be cleaning your data to kick out people who are trying to straight line just to get race through it. Yes, I think that But you, I guess not everybody does. Though. Not everyone does. Also, people might not do like very favorable for every single person, but they might kind of 
stick to one part of the scale, they might not give it as much thought as they would have if you had broken them apart and mm-hmm. displayed it differently. And the reason people do that is saves time is because people are thinking about how many screens. Yes. So people don't want to spend, don't want to have 50 screens of, of a survey. So, they want to have 15 or 10 screens or something. Exactly. So one thing that people used to do is when they would time grids versus individual items, they would be comparing a grid where it's like 10 questions or 10 sub-items all on one page versus... 10 separate questions, one per page, so 10 separate pages. Well, of course that's going to take longer, right? There's load times, and now with mobile devices, there's mobile load times, which might be even slower. But the fact of the matter is you don't need to put each question on its own screen. That's kind of like old school, which sounds funny, old school web survey design. That used <laughs> to be like what you everyone did. But now what we do is something, it's called quote unquote semantic chunking, which basically is you group multiple questions per screen as long as they're kind of on the same topic and go together. So for a broken up grid that I like to call a modified grid or a battery item on the phone, I would put all of those on the same page or maybe like five per, on one page and then five on the next and randomize the order of, you know, within a page and across pages. I see. But just wouldn't look in this grid that you yes, have to. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is on a mobile device, you can't display a grid anyway. Mm-hmm. So a mobile device, when if you have software that's mobile optimized, meaning it like makes the font bigger, makes the radio buttons bigger, it detects that you're on a mobile device and changes things, it's by default going to break up the grid on the phone, on the smartphone, to be multiple items. Mm -hmm. So you want your desktop to match your smartphone. Right. And so, you know, because otherwise you can have device effects or you're exacerbating differences already that exist. between. Right. So a device effect would be if the design makes it so people who are taking it on the phone answer it in a certain way, then you don't know if your responses are due to what kind of device they used or actual differences in how they feel about whatever it is you're asking them. You're very important questions. Yes, exactly. Um, Okay. So let's talk a little bit about then these different modes and trends in mobile surveys and tech surveys. Is talk a little bit about how and and how you think compare all of that to the gold standard, the grandpappy or grandma of it all, and, and landlines and with a cell phone component. Sure. So, um, in terms of mobile, we are seeing an ever in- as Michael Link, who uh, now is works at FSRBI, used to be at Nielsen, likes to say, if you're doing a mobile, or sorry, if you're doing a web survey, you're doing a mobile survey at this point. So even if you don't... I'm going to be on a panel with him, by the way, at APOR, uh, Michael Link. He's great. He's great. He's great. He's past APOR president. Um, So basically, you know, even if you don't encourage people to respond on a smartphone or you know, incentivize them to or something, you're still going to have some proportion of your web survey respondents respond on a smartphone. When I was at Pew, we were getting up to something like over 40% of our web panel responding on a smartphone. So that's huge. So obviously that's like part of the wave of the future. So when you're doing web survey questionnaire design, you definitely have to keep them in mind. One reason that was a little higher than we see in the rest of the industry, I'd say it's probably more like 25 to 30% elsewhere, is because we did experimentation with, speaking of text messages, sending survey invitations via both email and text message Mm -hmm. where we had consent to do so. Mm -hmm. So that was really interesting because we did first experimented with it, and we saw that when you send invitations, like a link to a web survey via text message, not surprisingly, you get more responses on a mobile device. Right. Um, and you also get, this is kind of interesting, you get more responses earlier in the field period. So if you have a qu- really short field period, like a quick turn poll, you might want to consider doing that. Right, right. And so do you, so how does that compare? I mean, so like Pew puts a lot of effort into their panel. There are other panels that 
are just as are seemingly just as good, at least according to the Pew, Pew's own research. Um, and these various panels are not necessarily probabilistic. Mm-hmm. There's a you know so, they're self-selected in some way. It, it, so how does that affect? our views toward the industry and what does it mean? Are we challenging our own notions of like whether it's important to have a probabilistic sample? That's a great question. So I think there's two parts of that. First is generally moving from the phone to the web, which has, you know, something called mode effects. We can talk about that. Like that's an issue. But then generally the move from probability-based samples where people are randomly selected, everyone in the population theoretically has a chance of being selected, you're inviting them to participate versus non-probability samples where people are opting in or volunteering. I think that for a long time, um, probability-based samples were seen as the gold standard. But more and more now, we're really moving towards not just people using non-prob or, you know, these online panels, because we saw that with market research for a while. But what's really fascinating is more of the kind of big players in the survey research or public opinion polling space are moving towards that. So I am on the APOR Standards Committee that we're basically like the methods police for the American Association for Public Opinion Research. And we Kylie's have- not going to come arrest you <laughs> if you do I a mean, grid in your online maybe survey. Though. And um, APOR stands for, just for our non-APOR it's Peeps. the American Association for Public Opinion Research, and it is kind of our industry um, group for pollsters and for survey researchers. And one thing I was tasked with doing was going through um, our best practices for research page on the website, and it was hilarious because it must have been written five to ten years ago. And it was like, you will not be taken seriously if you use non-probability. It wasn't that strong, but it was almost that strong. Right. And we had to edit it because it was like, media will not report on, and it's like, no, media is now commissioning non-probability right. polls. So, right. Yeah. No, that's changed. Dra- yeah. I mean, because I remember when we, you know, j- several years ago, and giving clients advice, like, oh, I want, pre- you know, to get press coverage on this. And you said, well, then you have to do it by landline. Yeah. Otherwise, yeah. you are limiting yourself right away. And now that's just not, you know, that's not really true. It's not. It's not. And I think what we're also going to see, so we're seeing a shift right away from kind of landline cell phone telephone polling towards these non-probability online polls. And my other sort of crystal ball prediction for research generally is that, we're not going to be so reliant just on surveys. I mean, I think we're seeing this already, but there's going to be a lot more secondary data that get, that comes into answering our research questions generally. We've just made a lot of advances in terms of how we can get secondary data, and that could be scraping social media or Twitter, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. There's, you know, press releases, whatever. I think we're getting a lot better at kind of harnessing or harvesting that data and also making sense of it. So advances in um, data science, like machine learning, that kind of thing. Right. So being open-minded about the data source yeah. as opposed to saying, no, we're going to hold on yeah. to landline yeah. with cell phones and until you, yeah. know, you yeah. pry it out of our hands. I mean, I love me a phone survey. Like, I'm not going to lie. But the fact of the matter is it's just getting so much more expensive. And the funny thing is response rates really haven't gone down that much. People think that cell phones are ruining everything. Right. Cell phones did not ruin anything. Cell phones made things better in a lot of ways. Right. That was what the Pew, one of the Pew reports. Yeah. So we did this report called the Twilight of Landline Interviewing, like by Felicia Landlines. And basically... (laughs) That's so dramatic. (laughs) I know. It's kind of sad. It's funny, though, because I separately wrote a paper about landlines, and I had to, like, ask people about, like, very, very in-the-weed stuff about landlines, and there was no one. Nobody, like, remembered exactly, you know, the Matofsky-Waxberg method. It was really sad. Um, (laughs) But... 
Yeah. So well, we did- just try talking to your children as I did about what a landline is like. Oh my god, that is a pretty. There's a video, but there's a like a YouTube series of people show their kids old technology. I don't know if you've seen. This. I have not, but I would. Love it's it. like you show like an eight year old an old typewriter and try to explain to them what it what it does. And so we we did that with uh, landlines, and so yes. I was explaining like it was attached to the wall, and when you went out to a restaurant. Nobody could call you, like and and Lucy. I mean, it sounded like I was riding around in a horse and buggy to hear. She's like, "How did you? How do you remember that long long ago? <laughs> what did you do when you went outside? How did anybody call you?" Like she just could not wrap her mind around it. When we go to hotels, the first thing we have to do is unplug all of the landlines because oh, my kids will spend twenty five minutes like pretend calling. They're like, "What is this thing?" Oh my god, I know Beckett. Beckett's. I mean, the number of people that Beckett's cranks call the house is just gigantic. <laughs> The attendant in the plane, everybody, like, just constant. <laughs> anyway, so those days are over. Yeah, I mean, for the, the thing is... Increase, although I have to say, 10, 20 years ago when we were started to talk about this, I thought we would be farther along in kind of the yeah. move, the migration from landline well, to I think what online. happened is, first of all, response rates have not continued to, like, plummet, as everyone's predicted. They've kind of plateaued. What... That the problem is that came at a huge cost. So yes, they may have plateaued, but they're it's very you know it's hard to get interviewer interviews. It takes more time. It costs more money. So they haven't plateaued the way that we thought. Also, the sample composition when you use cell phones is actually pretty darn good. Mm-hmm. You can get very close to pop like the population distribution on age, on gender. You actually can get males, which is surprising because they are usually hard to get. Um, and on race ethnicity, you can do very mm-hmm. well with getting Hispanics mm-hmm. and African Americans in your poll. The problem is education. It's very hard to get enough people with a high school education or less. And so that's one place that I would say phone polls, polls are lacking. It's kind of like no matter what we do, we can't get enough of them. We can use weighting and other you know techniques to adjust for that on the back end. But that's a shortcoming. But all of that said – Phone polls are not dead by any means. They still have a lot of life left in them. They're just harder to do than they were right, in the past. Right, right. And we've talked about this before, the regulations that make oh, – yeah. because you have to do manual dialing for cell phones, that just ups that cost, especially as you have to continually increase the percentage of your poll that's done right. uh, on cell phones. And if there's this threat of lawsuit, which – there is since Gallup had to settle a twelve million dollar mm-hmm. case, and you know then that adds cost even more. Everyone's just sort of rolling the dice. Now the issue of reaching downscale folks is what you have said to me in our conversations is part of what you think is you know part of the what happened in twenty sixteen yes. polling conversation, which you are studying as part of your role at APOR. So talk a little about that because that conversation still goes on. I still I still get asked about that. I mean, slightly less than yeah. a couple of months ago where like cab drivers and hairstylists <laughs> like, all over the world were asking about it. Like, so it's just t- dialed down a little bit, but it's still pretty out there. Um, but anyway, you think it's a lot of it is about this reaching folks with a uh, high school degree or less. So yes. Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, absolutely. So let's do a little scene setting first before I go in, in terms of what happened in 2016. I think the national polls were actually did pretty well. And so when I'm going to talk about like what I think the problems were, the national polls on average had Clinton winning the popular vote by about 3%. She was going to win in the end by a little more than two. So they weren't hugely problematic. It was problematic that you know, it wasn't randomly distributed. So some had Clinton winning, some had Trump. They pretty much all had Clinton winning. But by and large, the national polls did pretty well. Where we saw more of an issue was in the state level polls. Um, 
they, you know, Trump outperformed the polls in a number of states and in some states by quite a lot. And so the reasons that my hypotheses that we're kind of, you know, testing now, and I think these are a lot of people's hypotheses. So first is this idea of non-response bias. That everything's rigged. Is that one of your <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, it's all like election fraud, obviously. Um no. So my first uh, <laughs> hypothesis is this idea of non-response bias, which is basically some groups are more likely than other groups to respond to surveys. And if the people who do respond are different than the people who don't respond, that's going to bias your poll, right, or your results. And so we know that no matter – even if you call the 100% cell phone, you don't get enough people with low levels of education, so high school diploma or less. And so – Obviously, we know that those people were, you know, pretty pro-Trump this time around. It was a big driver. It was one of yeah. the bigger predictors than it, it typically is. Exactly. And so if you don't have enough of them in your poll, that can be a problem. Now, a lot of pollsters will use this technique called weighting, which you may or may not have heard of, where basically you adjust your sample respondents to look like the U.S. population or the population of Ohio or whatever, wherever it is that you're polling. Um, you adjust your population to reflect the demographic composition. But what's interesting is some pollsters don't wait on education. And so if you don't get enough of them and you're not adjusting for them, that can be a problem. But then even if you do get enough of them, there could be a difference between the people you're getting in your poll with low levels of education versus the full electorate. So you could use waiting to change the number of downscale or lower education folks in your poll. You can't change the, the people. You can't add people you can't exactly. reach. So there may be some lack of robustness to that part of your sample. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that is one hypothesis that's floating around. Another, and you guys have talked about this here, is the shy Trumper effect, which is basically the idea that people are or were embarrassed to say that they were going to vote for Trump to tell another person that or to tell an interviewer that. So going in the primaries, it was noted that Trump seemed to be doing better in online polls where there was no interviewer than he was doing in live telephone polls where basically the respondent had to tell somebody, oh, yeah, I'm totally going to vote for Trump. And so Morning Consult did an experiment during the primaries right. where they tested having people – they randomized to have people – you know, one group of people in an experimental design respond online or on the phone. And they saw that, whoa, people were more likely to say that they were going to vote for Trump online in this kind of controlled experiment. But that was just with college-educated folks. Well, so it this, wasn't is, that... this is actually in the primaries, oh, but they right, right. redid it in the general right. And yeah, exactly. In the general election, the effect went away, yeah. except for among college-educated people and people with higher incomes. So there's some debate if that actually was, you know, a thing that was happening. Clearly, it was happening for those small and groups. It was definitely happening in the primary. Yes. And then, it went away. and then in the general, I feel like it's mixed. I feel like I yeah. saw a couple different studies, and they were all a little mixed. I don't think it was just Morning Console. I feel like the Upshot did one of a similar project. I'm sure because that is like one of the number one things I get asked about is the shy Trumper effect. So I think there's probably a lot of people who have been looking into it. And as part of there's this APOR pre-election polling task force. It's chaired by my old boss, Courtney Kennedy from Pew Research Center. And I've had on the show as well. Yes. What you didn't know is I was secretly in the room listening to the whole thing being taped, being like, they're so cool. I love that. You were like her like comms person in the background, like she's not going to answer that question. <laughs> no comments. Um, so... So we have this um, task force, and these are the kind of things that we're going to be looking into. And so shy Trumper effect is something that we're going to be looking at as well. Well, there's also – so far, I talked to the folks at Huffington Post because I, I see some people already talking about this. Already, if you're looking at approval rating, a difference between the phone, the live call, yeah. 
approval rating is worse for Trump than the online approval rating for him. But at least when I talked to Natalie and Ariel at um, Huffington Post, they're like, it's too soon to really say that this is an effect. Yeah, it's also hard, too, because there's both uh, a mode effect, which is basically same person, same question, will respond to a question differently if they're online or on the phone. But then there's also totally different samples in those two groups. So unless you do a true experiment or have something kind of more robust, it's hard to just say like, oh, my God, all these online polls are saying one thing and all these polls are saying another. Could be because people are embarrassed to say that they think he's doing a good job. That's a couple leaps too many. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, so the, sorry. So that's part of what you're studying as part of the task force. When's the task force going to have the answer? When can I have an answer for everybody? Like instead of saying, "Well, here are my here are the eight different theories." Out yes, there. I just right? want one, like eight word sentence. When yes. can I have that? You will have that in May. You will have that in May. The task force report will come out ahead of the APOR annual conference. We're actually going to have a panel at the APOR annual conference where we're going to talk all about the report so you can come hear everyone walk through their sections. Oh my goodness. All right. Th- that's exciting. So can like anybody join APOR? So folks who are like grad students out yes. there. We have a lot of grad student listeners and folks who are kind of early in their professional career. Can they all join APOR? Should they join APOR? Tell us a little yes. bit about your role. Aren't you like running for something? I am. So A, you should all join, and then B, you should all vote for me. So I am currently – I am on the education committee. I'm the one who manages all the webinars for APOR. I'm the chair of the online education subcommittee of the education committee. Okay. Um, but every year, APOR holds elections, and I have been nominated to be the associate education chair, which is on the APOR Executive Council, which for dorks like me is like the most exciting thing ever. Wow. It does sound <laughs> exciting. <laughs> I'm trying to get more. We've had a lot of APOR folks on the show, and I was a little APOR shamed by John Cohen the last oh, time no. I saw him. Last year, he's like, why are you not doing more with APOR? Are you not a member? Well, I don't think I'm a member. <sighs> Margie, all right. But I am gonna... speaking at, at the, one of the kickoff sessions in May. Okay, so A, right after this, we're going to go sign you up, and then B, we okay. can have more. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if nothing else, then to vote for me. No, all sorry. right, this is really, this is real retail politics. <laughs> <laughs> this is like real GOTV. Okay, well, that's exciting. And then tell us about, so then another thing is Kylie's got two young kids who are basically similar ages to my children, and she does all these fun things in her spare time when She's not saving us all from our, you know, poorly worded questions. Um, she is out enjoying Washington. So talk about your blog. So this is how she, you know, the, the, Washington is not just people backstabbing each other in the press. Like there are people out doing fun things. So tell us a little bit about so, that. Uh- in November of last year, I was sitting around with all these friends, and they were all talking about restaurants in D.C., and I was like, oh, my God, I have no idea what you were talking about. I haven't heard of a single one of those. So soon after that, the Washington, D.C.'s first Michelin guide came out, and I said, darn it. That was big. Yeah. So my mission was to go through and eat at every single restaurant in the Michelin guide so I'd know what the heck these people were talking right? about. So hence was born, hashtag Mission Michelin, which started out as just like me going out to dinner and then putting it on Facebook. And then enough people were like, you should write about this. I want to read about this. So I started a blog, which is missionmichelin.com. And you can also follow me, and you absolutely should, on uh, Twitter, at Mission Michelin, and on Instagram, at Mission Michelin. That is awesome. So that is great. Well, thank you so much, Kylie. And so where how can people find you on Twitter? I'm at Kylie MCG, so K Y. 
M-I-L-E-Y-M-C-G. I'm one of those people who sends out like a flurry of tweets. And by that, I mean like six. And then I won't tweet for another month. But I'm trying to get better at being a little more consistent. Well, that, that can be one of your 2018 goals. Although Twitter, I mean, you know, I don't I, sometimes... Sometimes I think it's good. Sometimes I think it's kind of sometimes it's good to be a lurker on Twitter and just kind of watch it all happen. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Okay. Well, thanks so much, everybody. A Westwood One podcast production.